and welcome to the AWS podcast, the podcast of the Association of Women Surgeons, with your hosts, Stephanie Bonney from Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and Heather Yeo from the Weill Cornell School of Medicine. Here we interview women surgeons to engage, empower, and excel with women surgeons around the world. Follow us on Twitter at Women Surgeons, on Facebook, and go to our website for more information at www.womensurgeons.org. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ashanti Ragnasekara. I'm a clinical assistant professor at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon at Crozier Keystone Health System in Chester, PA, and a member of the EAST Mentorship Committee. Joining me is my co-moderator, Dr. Stephanie Bonney, who is an assistant professor of surgery and a trauma and acute care surgeon at the Rutgers New Jersey Medical School in Newark, New Jersey. She's a co-chair in Association of Women Surgeons Communications Committee and also a member of the EAST Mentorship Committee. We are very excited to have our guests today, Dr. Crandall and Dr. Cassandra White. Uh, Dr. Crandall and Dr. White participated in the EAST Mentoring Program in 2017, and they are both members of the Association of Women Surgeons. Dr. Crandall is a professor of surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville, She's the Associate Chair for Research for the Department of Surgery and Associate Program Director for the General Surgery Residency. She's currently a member of the Division of Acute Care Surgery. Dr. Crandall performs emergency general and trauma surgery, staffs the ICU, and is an active health services researcher. She's published extensively in the areas of injury risk factors and outcomes, disparities, geographic information systems in trauma research, gun violence, and violence prevention. We also have Dr. Cassandra White. She's an assistant professor of surgery at Augusta University, which is formerly known as the Medical College of Georgia. Dr. White has recently been appointed as the program director of the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship, and she's a medical director of the Trauma Intensive Care Unit. As part of the Trauma Acute Care Surgery section, Dr. White performs trauma and emergency general surgery in addition to caring for patients in the trauma and surgical ICU. Dr. White's current interests include quality improvement and injury prevention. Thank you, Dr. Crandall and Dr. White, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and um, start with the question for Dr. White. Uh, Dr. White, what influences have you had in your career with the EAST Mentorship Program? Oh, wow. Um, mainly, so I can honestly say that I first um, – foray into this is actually when I met Dr. Crandall at the um, East Mentorship Program um, two years ago. Um, as my personality just makes it a little bit difficult to actually re- seek out help, and I, I do it a little bit better now compared to when I was in residency, um, but I could honestly say the East Mentorship Program made it a little bit easier to approach people that we would honestly feel that we were, you know, they're way above <laughs> Um, our station, uh, so to speak, um, for lack of a um, better term, but it, it allowed us to actually speak with people that um, have extensive experience within um, the field of trauma and just kind of pick their brains and see actually who, who would fit with your personality. Mm-hmm. And that's how I actually met um, Marie was at, at the East Mentorship Program two years ago, and it's been continual ever since then. It's been a, it's been a great experience for me. Great. Um, and have you had any other um, 
experiences with other members of EAST or um, AWS? So I've had um, other experiences, and actually uh, outside of, say, EAST or um, AWS, there are a couple of members of EAST that I met through um, American College Surgeons, uh, surgeons as educators, uh, which I didn't know were had a um, had a, a big role in East, and then a couple of the people that are in AWS, um, uh, one of which is um, Dr. Celeste Hollins, was actually one of my previous um, attendings when I was in training in uh, Mobile, Alabama, and so that continued on after after the fact, and I actually met her again at uh, APDS meeting in Seattle one year. So it's and it's been a fruitful experience meeting, uh, just having a relationship with her outside of the attending resident relationship. That's excellent. And um, Dr. Crandall, what mentorship opportunities have you experienced through EAST and AWS conferences or meetings? Yeah, um, so I've been a member of both of those organizations for, you know, more than 10 years, probably 15 to 20 years with respect mm-hmm. to EAST in terms of the first meetings I ever went to. Um, I would say that both of those organizations were the foundation for some of my earliest academic career successes. Um, I East was the first trauma organization that I owned, and I met people nationally that I otherwise would not have met. And it helped to have some prominent Chicago trauma surgeons that I felt comfortable talking to, I felt comfortable being around because they at East meetings would then introduce me to other people around the country. And that was really the beginnings of the academic, I would say the academic um, relationships that I started to make. And then with AWS, I, I, I echo Cassandra's thoughts that it, AWS in particular put me into contact with people that I would never have approached. I, I'm I'm similar to Cassandra in that I was never really good at reaching out and asking for mentoring, but with AWS, because I volunteered to be on committees and then ultimately chaired a committee and then went and then became part of the leadership of AWS, um, it it was a place for me to meet chairs of surgery in other disciplines other than other than trauma and acute care surgery and at a time when I was very junior and to talk about career development and faculty development and think about things not just my next step but my next five steps my next ten steps really think of it as a chess game not just where I want to be and what my next paper is going to be but where do I want to be in five years and ten years and it opened up a tremendous amount of doors and those relationships and mentors have been some of my strongest mentors and proponents in my career. So both, sorry, um, both East and um, and AWS have have been have been really strong foundations for my academic career. That's really assuring to hear that, especially um, uh, as a junior attending, going through these organizations. Um, And Dr. Crandall, what mentorship opportunities do you offer your young residents and your junior attendings? So I would say that this formal EAST program is really nice because I agree with Cassandra that while I think we had sort of an informal mentoring relationship prior to the EAST structured mentoring, Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't 
we weren't forced to set anything up. And if you're not at the same institution, it's a little, it can be a little more challenging, especially with, you know, busy trauma surgeons. But the, but I have, I do have extensive experience in mentoring students and residents and junior faculty as I've become more senior. Most have been at my institution, but not always. At times, people have reached out to me because of the research that I've done and said, hey, can I collaborate? Hey, can you, can you take a look at my work and make some suggestions? Hey, would you like to be part of an MITC? And those opportunities, I would say, not only, not only <coughs> increase, but multiply mm -hmm. as, as you become more senior. And mentoring begets mentoring. So, I, but I, but I will say that very little of that has been formal, mm -hmm. with the exception of this East mentoring program. I see. And yeah, I, this is Stephanie. I will just jump in and say that um, I think I was one of those people who like reached out to Dr. Crandall and was like, "Hey, I, I'm really interested in what you do. Can you help me so that I can do it too?" And um, that's been, you know, tremendous. Although um, I don't want Dr. Crandall to get flooded with emails after this podcast airs <laughs> with people. No, it, it helps me because when superstars like Cassandra and Stephanie reach out to me, I just look more spectacular without really having to do all that much except a couple of, you know, a couple of pats on the back and you're so great and then suddenly I'm a great mentor. <laughs> we have rock stars to work with. Excellent. Um and Dr. White, do you see any challenges as an acute care surgeon and a trauma surgeon that is specific to being a female? Um, the one thing that sticks out, and, and actually I tell um, my junior uh, residents, uh, this junior and senior residents, this information also, is that it, it's always difficult to, at least for me, because I'm all of five foot four and I'm not really <laughs> loud spoken, that they you get you get kind of overlooked or just like oh you're you're the new you're the new attending here mm -hmm. and once they get to know you that goes away and and sometimes I don't even think they even realize that they did it initially especially as they get to know you but it's just trying to assert yourself as you're the attending you're the one that is in charge of the situation and trying to get that up, get that point across without becoming um, upset. Um, is sometimes difficult. Um, I've learned to work around that um, as I go on um, in my career, but it can still be frustrating to have to prove yourself over and over again. And actually, not necessarily prove yourself, but just have to, you know, demonstrate over and over again that I am the attending. Whereas a male counterpart, mm -hmm. my junior residents don't have to worry about that problem. Sometimes even my medical students don't even have to worry about that because they're automatically seen as the one in charge because. They're male, or they happen to be taller, which is 90% of the time taller than me. <laughs> right. And um, how do you how do you basically face these challenges? What type of actions have you taken to overcome these challenges? Um, I redirect them, um, reintroduce, reintroduce myself if they can't have if they can't read um, my ID or my code, um, and. And, and and it's not most of the time, especially with with patients, it's not malicious. Um, and even with other staff, it's not malicious. It's just um, culture norms. And I I do live in the southeast, and it's just still not part of the co common culture to see a female um, being a physician, specific, specifically a surgeon, and asserting themselves as a leader. Um, I feel in the next maybe 15 years that will change, especially as 
half of the uh, people in medical school are female, and most uh, about half of the residents in my program are also female. Mm-hmm. It's just it does not translate over into the faculty, and it's it's improving. Don't get me wrong; it's actually over the last two years, it's actually improving at my institution. But when I first started, I was one of three females um, in the Department of Surgery. Right. Yeah, that's that's pretty significant. Um, and then Dr. Crandall and Dr. White, both of you guys hold leadership positions in your institutions. What advice do you have for us young budding surgeons to attain these leadership roles? Um, I would say that the first, it, it helps to, like I said, most of us are thinking about, you know, our incentive pay and making the targets and mm-hmm. what papers we're writing or what projects we want to start. But we also really have to think, and, and my mentors, my mentees get sick of hearing me say this, but um, you have to think where you want to be in three, five, ten years. And if you want to be in the C-suite, if you want executive leadership positions, which some people do, or if you want leadership in research, or if you want clinical leadership, if you want to be a a trauma a trauma director or a, the 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 critical care director for your institution those are goals that you have to keep in the big picture and try to streamline your activities both nationally and within your institution to to be able to foster that and sometimes that means meeting with your own division chiefs and your own chairs and saying and more than once more than two times more than 10 times saying these are my goals am i getting there and I see there's an opening on the quality committee, the quality and safety committee. I see there's an opportunity to direct the process improvement committee. Can I do that? You've seen my work. I think I can do this. And then do it. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is be aware that if you do things and you do them well and you meet your deadlines, that people will ask you to do more and more things because you'll find that that there's like four people doing the thousand things in the institution and everybody else is just on the committees by name. And and you all know that and experience that. So be aware and be protective of your time. Do some things because they're politically advantageous or because you were asked to by someone. But for the most part, do things that are really going to help you and that you're going to have the interest and the bandwidth to be able to put back in. That's very wise advice. And Dr. White, do you have any advice for us? Actually, I was going to say that um, I was one of those <laughs> mentees that got that advice because um, I really I didn't have any direction when I first started as a junior attending, and all I could I didn't have the three to five year plan, and all I could think about was like, well, I just want to you know get promoted. And you look at what's necessary for promotion, and you find that you have to be on committees and do this. And so I just joined everything. I have a lot of different interests, but after uh, having a relationship with Maria and talking with her, I've, I've streamlined it a little bit better right right now. It's actually a lot better. And now I'm just waiting for my time to you know to end on certain committees at my institution, and without the thought of renewing them um, because my interests now are tending more towards quality improvement. A lot of my activities are geared towards that right now. So I, I, I second what Marie says, and I and I actually tried with my junior residents, um, actually just ask them where they would like, where do they see themselves in the next five or ten years because right now some of them are just like, I don't know, I just want to graduate. And they have no idea where they see themselves, what their goals are in life. Right now all they see is 
I'm tired of being in residency, and, and it's a, it's gotten a little bit better. We don't have a formal mentoring process with our residents. Um, it's more informal. I, we have an open-door policy. Sometimes my door is a little too open, but I'm there to help guide their career, and it's, I have a, a couple people that are actually in my office all the time, and it's try to guide their career to give them something I feel I didn't have when I was in residency, um, so that way at least they don't make the same mistakes that I've made. Awesome. And it sounds like you're also offering them uh, some mentorship in their careers as well and, uh, when you're doing that. I hope so. <laughs> I, I, I hope I, I really – and it actually, it's it's been really rewarding, um, especially as I uh, work with undergraduate and um, medical students also. It's, our campus is pretty uh, multi – we have the undergraduate campus along with the allied health, uh, so we have nursing and medical and um, PA schools there, so um, it's – it's been a rewarding experience because we also have new nurse practitioner students on our service also. Mm -hmm. And I would say that paying it forward is really helpful for yourself, too, because it's just like in the operating room, you know, being on the other side of the table, taking somebody through a case is really different than doing a case with someone moving the body underneath you. And you learn so much by mentoring others and seeing how they grow. Plus that, it's a really rewarding, enriching relationship, and you build especially if you're in academics, but I suppose if you're not, it's a different, I have not been in anything other than academics, so I don't really, I can't really say, test, sort of, can't, you know, testify to any of that, but, mm -hmm. but I would say that for academics, it's really useful to be able to, to maintain relationships and to be able to help people get to where they want to go, because then you know the path for the next person who asks you, and it makes it easier. Right. I will definitely say it is a very different experience standing on the other side of an atten uh, on the table of being an attending. It's very different from being a resident. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Crandall and Dr. White, uh, what challenges have you guys faced attaining these leadership roles? Well, I mean, I think some of them are some of them are unique to to your specific institution. You know, you have, mm -hmm. but but the overarching themes challenges for. I think everyone, irrespective of gender and race, are politics and paperwork. And so <laughs> if you can figure those out for your institution, you're ahead of the game. Then there's also probably unique challenges at specific institutions, and those are harder to then mentor and advise without knowing the culture. But I think knowing the culture is helpful. Specific to women, I think women who are trying to, women who have a family, women who have children, I think their experiences is even potentially more challenging just because of the, the, the time gaps that puts in their academic advancement. And that's probably also true for private practice. You have a three-month gap where you're not earning. Um, so I think that all of those things are challenges. And in my specific circumstances, when I found that there was no further room for advancement at my institution. I kept working and kept looking for other opportunities and then moved to University of Florida where I am now, and that has been a really tremendous opportunity for growth for me. But I didn't do it lightly, um, and I'm not one to change jobs every couple of months. So mm -hmm. so I, I think I put a lot of thought into it, and it, it has really worked out for me. But I think that when you find yourself challenged or you're not going where you think you should be going or or not as quickly as you should be, just reevaluate and see if there's anything you should be or could be doing now to change that. Mm -hmm. Dr. Um, White, what meant, uh, how has this mentorship relationship helped you attain these leadership roles? It, um, number one, it helped 
focus um what my what i what my goals are for my uh for my career and if this um position I'm currently in will help me attain those goals and that's that's number one number two is actually um something that Marie mentioned earlier about having that conversation with either your section leader or your chairman or your vice chair to let them know what your goals are and to see if they can help you obtain them and just so they they know where where you where you stand and so right right now currently um it I have had those conversations and there has there has been some there have been some changes with, with regards to personnel that's also also helped um to improve my situation here at this facil- at this uh, institution mm-hmm. and so it has allowed me to grow as a person and as a clinician and it it can only get better right now. It's difficult right now because we are a little short staffed, but um, I don't see any negatives with the direction we're going in right now. So I'm I'm, I'm optimistic. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm very uh, pleased with um, what I've learned from Marie this year, the past year and a half. That's great, Dr. White. Can you describe a difficult situation or a case you've had, and how Dr. Crandall has helped you get through it? Actually, my most difficult well. Um, was the interpersonal relationships with our with my group. I am the only female in my group and I have I had certain goals that I wanted to attain and there were some personality um there were conflicts uh with um myself and one other person and um this person was actually in the way of my goals but um after talking with another one of my partners and and uh with the vice chair it's actually helped me to have a better voice. Um, with what my concerns are, what my needs are, and not feel like I'm rocking a boat or causing unnecessary problems when it's really, at the end of the day, was a problem for the entire group. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I've become a little bit more uh, outspoken with um, my needs with regards to my career. Okay. And um, what tips can you give us surgeons young budding surgeons on what to look for in a mentor. Wow. Um I actually when I saw this question I was actually um it's interesting because you don't I feel that you don't need just one mentor because it mm-hmm. it would behoove someone to actually have more than one, meaning you may have one person that will help you with some aspects of your career, then another person may be able to help you with um being a woman in surgery or in medicine and how to overcome certain uh, obstacles you may see um, during the course of your career, which a male um, physician may not be able to help you with. So I I feel that you you should have a mentor for various different aspects of what you feel your career, where your career is going to be headed. Because everything is not cookie cutter. Um, Everybody's path is different, but the people that you meet uh, may have had similar experiences and may help you along the way. Dr. Crandall, do you have any tips? Um, I, I think that was really eloquently put. I would also say, you know, pick people who answer your emails promptly. <laughs> 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 Correct. Um, and do you think that gender is an important consideration for ha- for the mentors that you pick? You know, realistically, in 2018, yes, I still think it's important. If gender is important to you, and to most women it is, in their field of surgery, then I do think it's important because whether we like it or not, the rest of the world sees us as a woman surgeon still. Um, Mm -hmm. Until we attain parity and until women attain parity, 
I think that's going to be the case. And there will be unique situations that women experience that men don't. And it's very useful to have someone who has been through it or who can guide you from the flip side of that. I, I, I certainly benefited from the experiences of the AWS leaders and the East women leaders like Kim Davis and Kim Nagy and Grace Rosicki, people who were just real, real leaders in the field that could share their experiences about being a woman surgeon, a woman trauma surgeon, a woman surgeon in leadership positions. And and that is, is like you, you absorb some of that just by osmosis. And I think that mm -hmm that whether or not it's formal or informal, you do learn from their experiences and you see how they multitasked and you see how their careers built on other aspects of their careers and how they how they put ten things in the fire and a couple of them worked so they kept on with them and just that, that continual outreach and building and outreach and building I think is something that I learned from a lot of different people but I but I really saw that these successful women surgeons had done that, and I wanted to model myself after that. Mm -hmm. And Dr. White and Dr. Crandall, do you have any mentors in your institution? And if not, what do you do? Or what advice do you have for other surgeons who may not have mentorship in the same institution? So I have a probably briefer answer than Cassandra because I'm pretty senior as a, as a professor. So I can't say that I right now have a mentor at my institution. When I, when I say that, doesn't mean that I have, that I don't have colleagues because I do, but most of the surgeons are at my level or junior to me. Mm -hmm. And there's really no one in the leadership suite that I consider a mentor because I guess they don't need to be at this point in my career, which is nice. It's a very nice yeah. place to, to be in my career. That being said, I do have mentors outside my institution, mentors and sponsors from AWS, from East, from AAST, that, um, from ACS, that I, that I continue to bounce things off of and collaborate with, and it's been, it's, it's, it continues to enrich my career. Um, from my perspective, initially I did not have a, a mentor at my institution. I have since um, developed a relationship with, um, with someone, and it's actually been very, rewarding um also just because um I wish we had started this when I first um began um in twenty twelve. Um but either way it's been fruitful. Um it, I've been very fortunate and he's also helped mentor a couple of our residents too um who are going into the field of uh, trauma, uh, academic trauma and uh, and acute care surgery. Um with that being said, I initially went looked outside of my institution initially, which is how I I met Marie and a few other um AWS and East members and then the relationship with this with my partner began after after that. So I was fortunate that I was able to develop that relationship afterwards. But I was already looking outside of my institution um to speak, just to obtain some direction. And if you can't find it at your institution, my recommendation would be to use um either AWS East or an organization similar um, to obtain a mentor in that in that form in that way. Wonderful um, advice. And Dr. Crandall, you had mentioned earlier that most of your mentoring programs that you offer your younger residents or junior attendings are informal. Do you have any formal mentorship programs in your institutions? There are formal mentorship programs for the residents, but not for the faculty. 
one of the reasons that I was recruited here was to help develop more formal mentoring for the faculty, and that has become formalized from a research perspective. So mm -hmm. the, the junior faculty that want to do projects and want to discuss potential projects generally come to me first. We discuss methodology um, just to make sure there's no glaring obvious omissions like, oh, wait, there's no control group or, you know, you, you don't really want to do this in a prospective way because it'll take 10,000 years. You want to do this retrospective, things like that. So I think that that has become formal. We've, um, we've hired research assistants and research coordinators who can work with our IRB. We have formal relationships now with um, our biostatistics center, that kind of thing that, that didn't exist before. And that is for both the junior faculty and the residents. But the, the designated mentee mentor is only for the residents. Mm -hmm. And Dr. White, anything at your institution similar to that? Um, we don't have a... I guess it's, it's something similar. We do have, um, as the program director has set up, a advisor advisee um, relationship, which it's I want to say even though it's formal, it's not really formal because it's not mandatory either. So it really kind of it starts in the beginning, great, and it just kind of peters off. Uh, sometimes only because they're just you're just matched or you paired up, and not necessarily with similar goals. And, and since it's not mandatory, it doesn't happen. Um, so that's why a lot of the informal relationships relationships do form. Uh, at our institution with uh, with the attendings and the residents, um, and there's definitely nothing formal with in terms of medical students and residents or medical students and attendings. Maybe that's something we should work on in all institutions as well. Um, the other question I have for you is: um, African Americans, we all know, are critically underrepresented in surgery. Could open discussions about intersectional feminism and intersectionality help mentor relationships for non-majority mentees. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Crandall? Um, I feel like I feel like when I have residents who um, when I have residents who are women, I, I you know certainly try to I'd certainly try to mentor them, and I also talk to them about resources for women surgeons, like the Association of Women Surgeons or ACS. ACS Women's Surgery Committee. When I have residents who are African American or Latino, I do tell them about um, the National Medical Society (NMS) or the um, or the the Society of Black Academic Surgeons because I feel like there's really there's another layer of of potential mentoring with experience-based com with common common experience-based mentoring that I think is really important, especially until, you know, you're an equal voice at the table. Um, I can't know what it's like to be an African-American woman in a Southern program like Cassandra, mm -hmm. and that ignorance may impede me from really giving good culturally sensitive advice to her, to, to her with respect to her career and where she, where she has to practice. Um, and and that would be that's what I tell most of my residents who are African American or Latino. Like they they there are ethnic and cultural societies for academic societies for medical students, residents, and 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 faculty, and that that may be a source of really good mentoring, relationship building, and then ultimately in the future, not just mentoring but direct sponsorship. 
Um, I've been sponsored by women in AWS that I've never worked with, I've never really written with, but they know me from years of being on committees, and I think that I would never have had those opportunities if, if it weren't for those relationships. That's excellent. And Dr. White, what is your uh, experience in this setting? Oh, it's um, it's been interesting. Um, only let me do, let me just back up because I when I decided I want to do surgery, it was it was because I liked the field. But then it became a little bit more rewarding when you start seeing people that look like you. Um, mm -hmm. Go through, have been through the experience, um, especially as different. You, as you know, throughout the pro, out throughout the country, there are programs that are considered malignant versus non-malignant, etc. Um, but to hear the different experiences, how they've gotten through their residency program and fellowship, and their advice for how to make it through. And these are women that both are single and do have families. Mm -hmm. um, it was it's rewarding to be able to meet um meet these uh women and learn from them. I was lucky enough to have two when I was in residency that you know again two strong women that showed me that it can be done and we and that were there were two african American female surgeons out of three um total female surgeons in the department of surgery and this was in Alabama so I've, I've felt that I had, you know, they, they gave good representation, gave good mentorship, all, th all three of them, and you, you learn a little bit from all of them. Um, I, as, and, as, and as Marie mentioned, you can get the, the cultural as, um, aspect in terms of how they got through residency and fellowship, um, which is going to be a little bit different than as a, as a woman. They're similar but still different, and you're able to kind of appreciate the nuance, which is why, again, going back to what I mentioned before about mentors, it's good to have mentors from all different walks of life because not all of them can provide you with, 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 with what you need for your career and for your goals. Dr. White, do you feel that race is a barrier to effective mentoring? Um, That is a not an easy question. And the reason I say that is it it can be it's a barrier if it's made one. Mm -hmm. So even though I do I I mean I know every day that I'm an African American female, um when I'm in medicine I don't feel that way until it's kind of brought up. Um I don't go to work feeling that I'm going to be the African American female surgeon here. I go to work to be a surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, but it be, it becomes a little bit different when it's made an issue. So usually when it so for when it comes to being a, you know finding a mentor, I don't feel that need that barrier uh, so to speak unless the person I'm approaching feels it's an, a negative mm -hmm. um, because that's not why I'm not going um, to look for a mentor uh, specifically for that. Now with that being said, every now and then I will go to an African American female when it comes to certain things, but overall, the first thing I'm thinking about is not race or even not even gender for the most part, but when it comes to certain things, yes, I'll go to that, but overall, my main goal is to try to survive as a surgeon. Dr. White, I think that's applaudable, and having that attitude is what has gotten you this far and being very successful. Um, my last question to you both is, why do you think that so many female professionals suffer from some degree of imposter syndrome, and how can this self-doubt be used as a positive aspect in the field of trauma surgery? 
I'm gonna be honest. I did not know. I never heard of this syndrome until maybe about six months ago. Um, mm-hmm. I had a discussion with one of my mentees, who's um, she's um, doing a research um, MPH program um, in the southeast, um, and that she that's how she felt. And she and that's and she was felt you know made to feel that way. I never really felt that per se. I'm my own worst critic and and with that being said I what how I the goals I place on me and and I place on everybody else meaning that if I feel that this is how someone should treat a patient or how to um, manage a patient and how to look after a patient I've what I feel I should do I've impart that on everyone else so I've never really felt that so I don't I can't really I can't really answer that question well because I, I don't think I've if I felt that way, I'm not aware of it, but I, I, I've always felt that I, I've i done well because I've done X, Y, and Z, and if I've failed, it's because I didn't work hard enough for something, but I never felt that I, I didn't belong somewhere. I felt that I've worked hard enough to be where I am. I didn't have to justify my presence here because um, I'm no different than anyone else. I work just as hard as everyone else here, and I feel I'm just, just as competent as everyone else I work with. Now, with that being said, I'm not saying I'm a super surgeon, but I'm aware of my faults, but also I'm aware that I am very competent also. Thank you, Dr. White. Dr. Crandall, have you ever experienced these feelings or... Um, you, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of with Dr. White on this. I, I can't honestly say that I had even heard of this imposter syndrome, um, mm-hmm. but it seems to be something that I had not heard of it till about a year or two ago and one or two of my residents have said that they feel that way that they're sort of plagued with self-doubt and do I belong um, I, I'm not I don't know I don't know what the difference is I don't even know for sh- I know that certainly women are are said to experience this more than men and I think that's probably because externally there's a question of should women even be at the table. Mm-hmm. I maybe it's up maybe it's upbringing. Um, my parents, my grandparents, my entire family, everyone I've ever been in school with, there was never a doubt that I could do whatever I wanted to do, and I worked hard and I was smart and lucky and healthy and people loved me. So <laughs> it's really, you know, I was I I don't know that I can speak to that the plaguing feeling plagued by self doubt because I always felt like. If I worked hard enough, I could do it unless I just didn't have the innate talent like running a sub five minute mile. You know, there's right. some things I'm not going to be able to do, but I don't. I suppose if I were out on a track and said I could run a five minute mile, then I would feel like an imposter. Right. But yeah. I, these are all skills that I have and things that I've worked to do, like research and, and trauma surgery. So I'd, I never really have felt that. Um, I'm, I'm, I agree with Cassandra. I've put in the work, I've worked hard, I've put in the time, and that just sort of in a meritocracy that earns me the seat at the table. Right. Dr. Crandall, and when your residents come to you with these type of feelings, what advice have you given them? I generally I generally tell them that they're awesome, and I tell them all the great <laughs> things that they've done and why they're really valuable to the program and say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not the one who can – the idea of self-doubt is not a reflection of your actual abilities is a reflection of the way you look at things. And I'm, I can't help with that. That's more psychology, meditation, exercise, you know, centering, grounding. But mm-hmm. what I can tell you is you're great at this, 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 and this. 
and I don't know. That, that's that's the way I approach it when people tell me that they have self-doubt. I don't know if it helps because, I mean, ultimately I suppose I'm trying to undo 30 years of someone's parenting, but, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. Well, um, thank you very much, Dr. Crandall and Dr. White, for joining me and Dr. Bonnie in our East CareerCast and AWS podcast. Are there any other um, comments that you guys would like to uh, share with us or any other advice? Um, one thing uh, uh, that came to mind was um, another thing that uh, is outreach. And I know the, some people wonder how much they can do, how little, how much, but just going out to show young people that women can do this, are doing this, is very important because you, you, I've talked to multiple students that have changed their mind because they didn't think that they could do it because they felt that they wanted to have a family, that they they shouldn't do surgery, but there's so many different ways that you can become a surgeon and and still have your outside life, your family life if you want to become, if you want to have a family. And just seeing that is enough for someone to actually pursue that goal and just just going out to talk, just even if it's for five, ten minutes is enough and you may find that you like it and continue to, you know, do a little bit more outreach. But just visibility is very important. I agree. The more I, I, I'm one of those people who you know, I've heard women say that when you know, when guys come up to them in a bar or, you know, fill in the blank some when they're on a plane, people say, What do you do? They say I'm in healthcare and I completely disagree with that approach. I think you should always say, I'm a surgeon because that's who you are. It's what you spent the last 20 years of your life doing and getting and working toward. And that that visibility is important, not just for the person you're sitting next to on a plane, but just to change the culture. The more of us that are out there and visible and successful, the more it normalizes the situation and the more attainable it is for you know the kids on the street who've never seen a woman doctor, who've never seen an African American woman doctor. Well, thank you very much for all your amazing comments and great advice. Uh, we really appreciate you guys for joining us today. And on behalf of the East Mentoring Committee and AWS, we would really like to thank you for your participation. Thank you again, Dr. Crandall and Dr. White. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to AWS The Podcast with your hosts, Stephanie Bonney and Heather Yeo. Follow us and like us wherever you get your podcasts and look for a new AWS podcast about every other month. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at Women Surgeons. And to follow our blog on our website at www.womensurgeons.org. The Association for Women Surgeons. Engage empower and excel with us.